Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a sunny but frigid late winter day in the mountains of Utah. My guest this week is intellectual property agent Steve Fisher. Steve began his career in the research department of World News Tonight, before becoming an agent and ultimately joining APA, where he's been since 1999. Steve's specialty is working out deals that bring your favorite existing properties to TV and film. Steve and I talk about his career, the sheer scope of the TV and film industry compared to publishing, and of course the process with which a book becomes a film. We dig into the business side of page and screen, and talk about rookie mistakes from property holders and the complications of dealing with artistic egos. We even touch on the Powder Mage deal that Steve facilitated for me. Enjoy my conversation with Steve Fisher. So your uh, kind of career as an agent, did that start when you joined APA in the in 99, was it? Uh, no, it, it, uh, I, I'd been at an agency prior to that called H.N. Swanson, which was a small literary agency that had been founded in 1932. Amazingly. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they really specialized in intellectual property. I mean, that was the whole reason for being for the agency. And so essentially at that point, I, I became an IP agent because that was really their focus. And so I started working with book authors, journalists, and a lot of the states, you know, they'd been through much of the 20th century. They'd rep these just mammoth authors and many of whom like James Cain and Cornell Woolrich and others, you know, they still, you know, control their estates. And so, uh, you know, I started working with those as well. But then, of course, over time, I, I really built up my own, um, you know, client base toward more contemporary uh, working authors, and that that worked out well. Oh, wow. Okay. So explain kind of to the listener the difference between a literary agent and an IP agent. Yeah. So so a traditional literary agent is somebody who takes material and sells it to a publisher, a random house, a Simon & Schuster, a Penguin, et cetera, et cetera, and they get the book published, uh, either domestically or foreign. And and an IP agent in, in, in the film business you know, takes that material and then shops it to producers, studios, networks, independent production companies in an effort to get a film made, a TV series made, a limited series made, etc. So it's a very, very different business. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm always struck by is how, how linear the publishing business is. You know, a publishing agent takes a raw manuscript, they call an editor, say, I really like this. I think you will too. Uh, if they do, they say, great, here's my offer. And, you know, if that offer prevails a year, year and a half later, you've got a, a, a book on bookshelves. It's a very, very straightforward business. Um, the film and TV business is anything but straightforward. And in fact, I would argue has become less and less straightforward over the last 20 years. I think that, you know, there was a day, you know, when, you know, you just sold a book to a studio 
and they put the movie together. And I always tell people that uh, I remember calling up a friend who was uh, a studio executive years ago, who's now the president of the studio. And, uh, you know, and and he said, gee, Steve, I really like your book. Bring it back to me with a movie star. And I, I won't mention his name. But uh, I just said, well, uh, gee, uh, isn't that your job? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and he said, not anymore. And while I, I disliked the answer, I appreciated the honesty because he was pointing out, you know, something we'd all kind of noticed is that more and more studios expected things to be served up to them. Yeah. You know, who's the writer? Who's the, who's the actor? Who's the director? And they were in a privileged enough position to expect that from people like me, you know, and, and by extension, I would say with the rise of the streamers, we've, we've, we've even take, seen that taken to the next level. I mean, I mean, people always, particularly in publishing, they see Netflix as the, 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 you know, the be all and end all, you know, anytime you, you say, well, this is an interesting piece of material, but it, but I think it's going to be tough to sell. They'll say, how about Netflix? They say it like I've never heard of Netflix before, <laughs> um, you know, and but but what they what they don't see because they're not they're not really in a position to is that Netflix wants things, you know, uh, brought to them kind of wrapped up in a bow, um, you know, and 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 to a fair degree, I understand, you know, unlike the networks, at least in, in terms of TV, you know, if, if they give you a production order, they're just not going to pilot. They're going to series. They're ordering eight episodes or they're ordering 10 episodes. Well, that's a that's a fair amount of programming right out of the gate. So, you know, if they're going to do that, they want to they want a sense of, you know, who's directing, who's writing, you know, what's the point of view? You know, how are you going to keep this on the air for two to three years? You know, et cetera, et cetera. So they demand more uh, in many ways than maybe uh, a traditional network who, you know, orders a script, then they order the pilot. Then they order a couple of episodes. You know, it's a much more kind of plotting, methodical process. And things happen differently differently on the streaming front. So, um, Well, and I got to imagine that even, even some of these streamers that are kind of more willing to be a little more experimental, I got to imagine they still have like a limited budget of, okay, this is the stuff we're going to, this is what we've allocated for guaranteed views versus this is what we've allocated for things that are a little riskier. You know what? I, I think that's a, I think that's a very, very fair assessment. And I, I think a lot of that uh, concerns the people behind the project. Do they have a track record? Are they the kind of people that they uh, want to be in business with? Or the, are, are they the people they've wanted to be in business with but haven't had an opportunity, you know, at this point in time? So I think that there's really a lot of factors that go into it. But, you know, I, I think a place like Netflix is really governed more by their algorithms. Yeah. You know, what uh, demographics have we not hit yet? What, what, what foreign programming have we not done enough of? What audience do we have that is underserved by what is currently on our network? You know, and it's a much more kind of scientific numbers crunching approach than at any of the kind of legacy, you know, studio buyers, for instance, or even the networks, I would say. Um, you know, I think networks are very concerned about, you know, certain demographics, 18 to 49, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I think the algorithms that places like Netflix uses are, are, you know, really take it to the next level. They're that much more sophisticated. You know, you'll, you'll see Netflix cancel <clears throat> a series that's done reasonably well for them. 
And, you know, they reveal very little, by the way. <laughs> right. And, I, and by the way, I don't mean to beat up on Netflix. I mean, you know. Oh, um, they're, they're a very good example because everyone has a Netflix account. Yes. Yes, exactly. And they, they you know, they've got the biggest development budget of, of, of anybody out there. I mean, it's a monster amount of money that they have to spend on content. But, you know, they'll they'll give you know on those rare times when they do give a reason you know they have said a couple of times in the past well you know this this show isn't getting us any new viewers mm-hmm. um and it doesn't buy us any more than i mean they put it a bit more artfully than this but you know they'll say it's not buying us anything that we don't already have yeah and you think well that's a fairly ruthless you know you know way to look at programming that is actually you know pretty popular but you know they're 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 looking at those numbers and how do we build on those subscriber numbers and how do we retain those numbers and and if they determine that if we cancel this show we're not losing any viewers um and it's not buying us anything new well, what do we yeah. have to lose oh that's a that is a fascinating way to look at it a little bit kind of under the hood there um yeah. Do you think so? I've talked to a few YouTubers for this podcast about kind of the idea of of kind of algorithms determining what content they have to produce to continue to get viewers. Do you think that 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 scientific approach to algorithms? Do you think that that it kind of stifles creativity, or 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 maybe does it give chances to uh, shows or books or whatever kind of entertainment uh, that? a traditional publisher or TV producer wouldn't pick up uh, because maybe they realize that it could get more views. Like, is there just a lot going on under the hood there, both good and bad? You know what? I I think that's the perfect way to put it. I think there's a lot going on the hood that's, that's good and bad. I mean, the idea that, you know, a, a network may say, you know, we have an underserved community on our service in South America. So we need to, you know, devote more research, resources to telling story stories from that region i I think that's fantastic uh uh, i mean i think it's you know and and it it forces us all to think a bit more globally and and frankly gives us an opportunity to tell stories that we might not have seen before and i think that is really great but on the other hand you know you become a, a slave to analytics and where's the creativity in that and and you know and let's be honest numbers can't predict the future. Um, You know, I mean, one of the great things about the business is, well, great and frustrating, nobody can predict a hit. Um, You know, we're all surprised all the time by things that really land with the public. And on the flip side of that, things that don't land with the public. I mean, you you just just can't know. Um, and, And while that's frustrating, it provides, you know, people and creative people with a certain amount of you know, flexibility to maybe try something different, tell a story in a different way. And, you know, and, and look, if you can get anybody behind that, I think that's all the better. So I, I, I there's a, you're right. There's a lot going on there. Some of it helps, some of it, do, some of it doesn't help. Do you think that the kind of massive uh, explosion of streaming services and different places trying to gobble up content, do you think that has made your job easier or harder? You know, I, I I, I think that's a great question. I, I think in a way both. I think in a way both because, I mean, I, I really came up in the business as as a feature agent. And, you know, before the rise of the streamers, when, when that was a very different business than it is today, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, let's, let's say 15 or 20 years ago, you know, you got a sense, you know what a Disney movie was. 
You knew what a, uh, a Universal movie was. You knew what a Fox movie was. And so, you know, you could really look at all the buyers and get a pretty good sense of what they would buy. Um, of course, you know, again, people were still surprised every once in a while by this or that. Um, and there were some variations sometimes that people didn't see coming, which was interesting. But, you know, you, you, gotta, you, you could wrap your head around the marketplace. And, and I think now, but, but, you know, the downside to that is that there were there were an awful lot of things that would just never be movies, which means they would they would probably never get made um, because they were deemed too small or they were too internal mm-hmm. or they were, you know, whatever, you, you, you know, they were about a demographic that they didn't think was big enough to be served. Yeah, um, that's a diplomatic way to put that, <laughs> you know. And, and I think now, you know, you look at the marketplace and you look at, you know, look, look there are still movies being being turned out of the, the, the legacy studios. And, you know, there's been an explosion in, you know, premium cable and particularly streamers. And you look at the things that they get behind and there's a much, much greater wide amount of material that they will get behind. So, so now for somebody like me, when you look at material, you know, you're not just thinking, well, can this be a, a feature film at any one of the six or seven studios? You're thinking of, could it be, could it be that, or could it be a streaming series on Peacock or yeah. HBO Max? Um, could it be a feature on, on Netflix or HBO um, or, or Paramount Limited on Paramount Plus? And that just opens up so many doors. Um, so, you know, there's probably things that I would take on now that I would never have taken on 15 or 20 years ago because the marketplace is so different and wider and more open yeah. to new things. I mean, I, I, I can't give you names, but I, I, um, I, I, I sold a uh, underlying material to uh, one of the new streamers that's coming out. And it it's... It's a comic strip that was in alternative newspapers, oh God, maybe 10 years ago, but more like 15 years ago. I used to read it all the time. I thought it was terrific. But, you know, it was in places like the Village Voice and LA Weekly. And, you know, and, you, know you could even argue that people had kind of forgotten about it. And, you know, they're turning this into an adult animated series. And my client is a showrunner on it. And it is for a very, very, very specific demographic. And... You know, on one hand, I think it's amazing that they're doing this. Um, can they make it work and 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 appeal to a you know a, an audience outside of that? I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, but I I am so thrilled that they're open to trying. Um, and this would never have been a sale ten or fifteen years ago. Yeah, that that's wild. And I mean, I I could imagine that my own situation isn't that far off of that. You know, like. Taking taking a uh, a reasonably successful epic fantasy series and selling it to a small Canadian production company like that's got to be that's got to be a bit different than what you might have expected you know back around two thousand you know it really really is and and it, it just shows it just goes to show you that you know we we all work in a global marketplace these days you know and there's a lot of ways to kind of skin the cat about, you know, getting a project out there no matter where where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of opportunities that didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago, um, in, you know, at a time when, you know, there'd be a handful of buyers for that, a small handful, there'd be a, a handful of producers who could make it happen um, over and out. 
you know, everything has, has gotten bigger and more, you know, and, and there's many more opportunities. So that is all to the good. Yeah. When you had that moment of that executive coming back to you and saying, bring me a movie star, was that a little bit terrifying? Was that like a moment in your brain where you're like, oh, this is changing uh, and, and I'm going to have to change with it? Absolutely. It, it, it absolutely was. I mean, you know, my, 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 I'll admit my first reaction to myself was, oh, God. <laughs> oh, because, you know, what does this mean? I mean, you know, to say to, say to somebody, bring me a movie star. I, I mean, that's a very, A, it's a very, very challenging thing to do. And it's a very sort of amorphous thing. You know, what's, what's the path to bring in a movie star? Well, there's a lot of paths to bring in a movie star, but they're all a bit challenging. You know, and and to get a movie star on board a project that doesn't have some other heat or element behind it, like a big director, a big writer, or hopefully a buyer, you know. Um, by the way, he wasn't saying to me, hey, if you bring me this person, this person or this person, I'm definitely going to buy that. You know, he wasn't saying that. Yeah. You know, so it it it, it was still again, a bit of a, an amorphous challenge for me because I could have done all that. And he may still have said, nah, you know, ah, that's not what we want to do. Yeah. And that, and by the way, that happens all the time. You, you serve up to buyers exactly what they tell you they're looking for in a project, exactly what they'll need to move forward with it. And they pass on it. And there is nothing more frustrating than that. Well, I got to imagine that that is crushing because I I mean, everybody, even kind of lay people understand that projects die in Hollywood all the time. That is just a thing. And but but you're the one that has to be trying to turn those forward. Is that just in how do you kind of get through the day of things constantly dying on your plate and having to go and tell your clients, well, this isn't the, yeah, they bought the option four years ago, but dad, they're not renewing this time. And you know, like all these things that you have to kind of deal with and churn through, how do you kind of keep your energy up? You know, I, I, I have to tell you some days it's a challenge. It, it, it really, you know, you know, you have to believe in the possibility of things that against all odds, you know, some things and some very, very worthy things are going to get through. And you have to accept the fact that there's going to be a lot of speed bumps along the way and you're going to hit a lot of walls and that some projects just won't survive. But there's going to be a percentage of really worthy things, things that you really believe in that are going to find their way through the forest. And and you just have to embrace that idea and get, you know, honestly, Get used to hearing no and get used to a certain amount of heartache. One thing I mentioned this earlier, you know, one of the, one of the, as, as a literary agent, one of the things that is, is hard to do is to answer the question, why is it taking so long? You know, why, why five years later is my movie still not made? And, you know, on one hand, there's a million answers for that. But in the bigger question, it's unanswerable. You know, I mean, the answer is getting a movie made in Hollywood requires an alignment of the planets that is just very, very difficult to do. Yeah. And that's really what it is. There, there are so many ways in which projects fall apart. Um, the director leaves the project. The script just never gets there. Uh, you know, the project was set up because of a piece of talent and they've now taken another job and they're busy for the next 18 months. And it all has to be put together time and time again. 
I, I, and there are so many ways. I mean, I've, I've said to people, every feature project, and I'm, I'm going to say feature more than TV because, you know, TV projects tend to have a little bit more durability, but feature projects, everyone is a house of cards and the slightest wind, that's all it takes for them to collapse. Um, and uh, it's painful to witness, but uh, there it is. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, Page Break listeners. Brian here to let you know that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order from Tor Books. Glass Immortals is a whole new universe that introduces you to assassinations, intrigue, industrial magic, harrowing battles, heartbreaking disasters, and more for new readers and old. The book is out in the U.S. on June 21st and can be pre-ordered from Amazon, Audible, Barnes & Noble, or get a signed copy straight from my website. Remember, pre-orders matter massively to a new book, so make sure you get that done. Thank you all so much for the support. Now enjoy the rest of the podcast. I, I talk a bit sometimes about that I, I try to have a lot of uh, kind of emotion. I, I try to give the, uh, the film and TV uh, industries a little bit more emotional leeway when it comes to these things, because... Because the moment you start peeling back, uh, you know, what we as the audience see, which is literally just, oh, my favorite project was announced. And then a couple of years later, oh, they made a movie. Great. I love it. Um, but once you start peeling back from that, you realize how many hundreds, maybe thousands of moving parts there are for a for for a series or a movie or anything like that that involves so many more people than than like a book. For instance, you know, my book involves a team of, I don't know, a dozen people, maybe. Um, and only a couple of those people are really necessary. Like, they can't be traded out for, like, you know, we couldn't just say, oh, the copy editor fall through, fell through. We'll grab a different one, you know, like that. But when it comes to film and TV, there's so many moving pieces, so many people involved before you even start shooting. It, 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 it really is true. And th th there's just so many variables. I mean, you know, one of the things and I hadn't mentioned this earlier, but I mean, this happens with some frequency and it, it, there's a whole history at the studios of, of, of this happening is that every time there's a new regime, you know, most of the, the current development slate gets swept out the door, not because they're not worthy projects, but they're not 
worthy projects that were generated by the guy sitting in the big chair at that moment. Um, and, and that can be enough. I, I, you know, I had one of the best packages I put together was on a limited series, um, a few years ago at, at, uh, one of the major premium cable companies. And, uh, it was bought in the room. They, uh, had an overall deal with a man who is arguably the best writer in television. And they brought him on to adapt and he jumped in with both feet. And from what I'm told, did a phenomenal job. I mean, the director attached to the project, who's notoriously fussy, said he had no notes when he read the the the, the scripts that this this man turned in. Yeah, they were they were that good. And uh, the head of the network uh, was after being at that company for 30 years, 30 years, Brian. Uh, was shown the door and with it, my project. Oh my gosh. And that killed it. And that killed it. And this project had so much wind at its back, just A plus elements up and down, brilliant scripts, five of them. And you think to yourself, well, certainly this package, that material, those names can withstand, you know, will there'll be another buyer. Somebody will step up. This will, you know, and no. That didn't happen. I, I, I was reading an article uh, just yesterday about uh, about the Ottoman Empire, and the article was talking about how when the uh, when a new sultan came in, nobody really knew what they were going to do, and uh, and sometimes everything was hunky dory, as hunky dory as it could be in an empire like that, um, and other times. They would just literally execute all the bureaucrats, everybody in the harem, everyone. They would just execute everybody for a fresh slate and then bring all of their childhood friends in to be their, you know, vizier and things like that. And uh, that it just that feels like that, you know, like, let's, let's just destroy everything. We'll start from scratch. That's, you know, you, you're not far off, m- minus the bloodshed, or at least the literal bloodshed. Uh, yes, it's a very, very similar system. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Oh, that, that's just, that's absolutely wild. Um, so I saw a uh, an interview with you from a while back where you talked a little bit about kind of the cutthroat nature of talent agencies. What does that ecosystem kind of look like? Well, um, you know, look, it, it's, it, it's um, you know, the, 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 the major agencies, um, you know, like they, they provide a, an important function. Um, and... Uh, you know, I mean, in many ways, you could for a lot of their clients, they they provide a really, really good service. Um, but you know, they're you know they have they have their own agenda. Um, and as we witnessed over the last two years, the Writers Guild felt like that agenda clashed clashed with their agenda. Um, you know, and you know that played out as we all know it is now played out. Um, but I think that you know I I, I think that. Agencies have really changed uh, and evolved, and and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think that you know at some point, um, you know at some point the ten percent business gets very very challenging, um, and uh, you know we've seen you know agencies large large agencies go into other businesses where either the numbers are much greater or they're not confined to you know that 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 model, um, and certainly the move into producing their own content was a very you know, audacious move in that direction, which has now been curtailed by WGA rules. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, look, the, the, the big agencies have evolved over the years. You could probably argue that they kind of needed to. 
and in a way they just needed to, to compete with each other. But, you know, they're, they're run by very, very ambitious guys and, um, you know, they want to continue to grow and continue to bring in ever, ever greater amounts of, 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 of profit. And to do that, you have to get bigger and evolve and buy and acquire and do things that maybe you didn't have to do 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah. And, and your own agency is massive. Uh, you know, APA is just, it's huge. You've got multiple headquarters, you've got multiple wings. Like what you do with kind of the literary stuff is only a very small part of kind of what the company does in general, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're in, uh, you know, we're in feature lit, TV lit, talent feature and TV, uh, music, concerts, personal appearances, comedy touring, licensing, branding, corporate consultation. Yeah, it goes on and on and on. I mean, agencies are very different animals than when I first started in the agency business. Yeah, I I bet. Uh, it's It's got to be strange. And I imagine that in, in 20, 30 years, I'm going to kind of feel the same way of looking back on my career and saying, holy crap, this is a different like beast than when I first started out, right? <laughs> Well, you know, it, it's 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 a funny thing. I mean, when you when you work at a big agency, you know, and you know, for instance, somebody from our 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 branding and licensing department came to us and said, "Well, we have this brand new client, and it was a you know a restaurant chain. I I won't mention it, you know, and and you know, we're looking for opportunities for that, and you know, it can be this, it can be this, it can be this, it can be this, and this is what we're doing for them." And I, I thought to myself, um, I mean, it's, that is so not my business. Um, and there's not a lot that personally I had to add to that. But I thought, boy, you know, 20 years ago, I, I, I don't know that I'd have been on a conference call in which this kind of conversation was taking place. But, you know, like on, on the other hand, um, you know, sometimes occasionally it yields something really, really interesting. I mean, we, you know, I had a, an author who repped, uh, who repped, who, who, um, uh, created this franchise of books based on uh, an action hero. And, uh, you know, I was approached by, you know, the, the clothing manufacturer of one of the signature pieces in, in one of his movies. And they said, look, we want him to be a brand ambassador and we want him to create stories around this. And we want, and I thought that is a really kind of fascinating thing, you know, for, for him to do, um, you know, and he was, he was on board. Um, you know, depending on how it played out and how we worked out the details and all of that. But I thought it was another example of an opportunity that came to, in this case, an, a case, an author client that would have not happened in a, in a different day. Yeah. So is that kind of how, like, just like from a layman's perspective, is that kind of how you see, um, like Daniel Craig doing like a James Bondy watch advertisement? You know, like, is that kind of the, the, the roughly the same thing? That is exactly the same thing. You know, when you, when you think about it, though, those, those whole, whole lines have blurred. You know, there was a day when if you were a movie star, you didn't do commercials. Yeah. I mean, that was that was beneath you. <laughs> you know, that was wouldn't do that. Tarnish your name. You know, and that, you know, that's out the window. Um, you know, and, and now you're seeing a much more direct and tangible connection to, you know, his signature film franchise. And there he is hawking a, you know, you know, a watch from the movie, which was obviously product placement, you know, and all very, very orchestrated. And he's taking it to the next level by going out there and flacking for this prod product. And you know what? Nobody bats an eye. 
So, you know, you know, obviously it's a it's a new day and everyone's thinking has evolved on that. You know, I mean, you see George Clooney, you know, selling his own liquor brand and, you know, and and doing commercials for Nespresso. And, you know, I don't hear anybody say, it. you know, it, it's hurting his viability as an actor and director. <laughs> I think everybody's saying good for you. Right. And that and that is it's a huge attitude change. Um, like, you know, in my own industry, it's kind of, uh, you know, not that long ago, if somebody self-published, oh, that meant they couldn't publish. That meant they couldn't get anyone to buy what they wanted. And so they're self-publishing and that's, uh, they're, you know, they're, I don't like, this sounds horrible, but there was an attitude of, oh, they're scum, you know, they're just, they're the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> but now it's like. Oh, well, self-publishing is just, it's part of the toolkit. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, kind of hybrid authors. There's a lot of very successful uh, self-published authors. And there's publishers who are going after self-published authors and saying, here, let me give you a big advance and we'll do a traditional published version. You know, so it, it just changes. Yeah, I, I, yeah we're, we're, we're seeing a lot less, I'll, I'll call it snobbery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When it comes to self-publishing, I've, I've got two great examples. I mean, you know, I I worked for for many years with Lisa Genova of Still Alice fame, and uh, that book had been self-published. And uh, you know, the book did so well, and Lisa was so savvy about um, about generating attention for that book, which is really what you have to do. Mm-hmm. That the book started selling like crazy, and you know, all the major publishers took notice. And that led to a much, much bigger publishing career for her, which was terrific and very, very well deserved. I'll give you an, another example, you know, Brandon Sanderson. You know, Brandon obviously has, you know, big legacy publishers behind him, particularly his big, big franchises. But, you know, he's also got his own publishing company, yeah. uh, Mainframe. And, you know, he'll publish, you know, novellas um, in or 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 other or sometimes novels that he wants to publish either as an ebook or in audio audio only um that he doesn't want to go through the major publishers for that he just wants to do on his own and get out there and uh do in the way that he wants to do and without the you know year to 18 months lag time that you face at the major publishers because it has to be positioned it has to be sold to the chains etc 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 and you know certainly nobody nobody looks at him as uh, as lacking in terms of a a big career so i think i think everyone's view toward all of that has changed and by the way i think it's i think it's i think it's great i mean when you, when you look at the traditional legacy publishers i mean they were really you know before you know the internet really came along and 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 self publishing became a a phenomenon i mean they were the gatekeepers and 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 it was a relatively finite number of people who said to prospective authors, you're worthy, you're not worthy, you're worthy, you're not worthy. You know, and obviously the vast number of people who, who approached them, they deemed not worthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives these authors an opportunity to prove them all wrong. Uh, and quite a number of them have. Yeah. And I, I think that's a great thing. Yeah. Oh, and it's and it's interesting because we talk about uh, we talk about gatekeepers. You know, that's I, I uh, you know, uh, editors are called gatekeepers, executives are called gatekeepers, agents are called gatekeepers on some level or another. Uh, but I I think it's fascinating because you can take all of that and and look at it as sort of these gatekeepers. I don't know. Like, if you're being generous, you can say that they're not necessarily trying to put down one person or another. I'm, I'm sure plenty of them have personal agendas, but 
I think that most of them are probably just trying to interpret what they think the public wants. Uh, and, you know, with agents, you're trying to interpret what a studio wants or what a, pr pr a production company wants, you know, whatever. It's it's such a bizarre kind of chain that you have to go through uh, to, you know, get a book made and then get a TV show made out of that book, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, 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 think, that I, I think it's true. And it, it's an incredible amount of prognostication, which is so often very, very faulty. You know, and it's yeah. <laughs> it, it's the equivalent of taking out that crystal ball and hoping that you can see into the future. Um, and then I think for a lot of certainly for a lot of people in publishing, you know, you know, I'll take it a step further. I, I, I think there are other factors such as is this going to be reviewed? Mm -hmm. Will this get attention in the places I want this to get attention? You know, if you're t if you're talking about a, a certain kind of, of fiction, you know, will it be reviewed by the people who I deem worthy? And, uh, and, 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 and my colleagues and my boss will think, will, will be impressed by, you know, will the New York times give it, give it the time of day, yeah. um, and, and give it that good review. You know, there, there's a lot of factors that go into that. And I, I can extrapolate further into, into my own business. You know, it's one, one of the things that I've been curious to see over the years, just not, you know, there's a lot of movies, independent films, well, not just independent films, even studio films that, that don't particularly find their audience, but, you know, they're critics darlings and, you know, people in the business think highly of them, and, and it gets the kind of positive acclaim and awards attention that you hope they will, you know, and unless it's a movie that cost a boatload of money and completely went down in flames, um, <laughs> which happens, yeah. you know, generally the people behind that movie can go on and thrive, you know? People very often in those scenarios don't look at them as you failed. You know, they look at them as you made a movie that I really admire and maybe it didn't find an audience and there can be a million reasons for that. But, you know, let's talk about something. I've got a project for you. You know, you 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 go down in flames when you try to do something completely commercial. Yeah. Spend a boatload of money on it. And it's a stinker. Yeah. You know, that's when that's when it really, really hurt. And those are, you know, those are the regime changing films i mean you know very often i can name a number of scenarios in which you know one big movie that went down in flames ended a regime um right you, you lose 300 million people don't like you anymore <laughs> no no the bloom is safely off the rose at that point <laughs> <laughs> people no longer have faith that you have your fingers on the pulse at that point uh i i had a funny question from one of my friends who when he found out i was going to be kind of chatting to you uh about for this podcast and and he asked how how does the mechanism in what you do work when a book gets pitched and sold to a production company before the book is even out because from an author's point of view that sounds kind of insane like there's no sales numbers there's no reviews nobody is talking about it how does that even happen you know that 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 that's a great question um and you know there's a lot of ways in which that happens and and i think um you know it, it, it in a case like that you know it reminds me of that old you know agent saying sell the sizzle not the steak you know you're 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 kind of selling the sizzle at that point. You know you're you're selling you're selling potential. Yeah. And I have to tell you it is way more it's way easier to sell potential <laughs> than, than it is, you know, the, the the bottom line scenario of what actually happened. Yeah. You know, so you know in in that case what you, you know you're selling a concept. 
and you're selling a big idea because you're right. Your friend is right. Look, there's no, there are no great reviews to point to there. There's, there's no validation Mm -hmm. coming from, you know, anyone in the industry at that point, you know, all you have is the fact that, you know, random house or, you know, penguin or somebody, some editor got behind it and paid you some reasonable amount of money, but that on its own isn't saying all that much. So, you know, you're, you're, you're selling, you're not selling performance. That's for sure. You know, you're selling the idea of performance. And honestly, that can very often be easier than to sell performance because the truth of it is the question I hate to be asked and I'm asked it probably weekly. How many books has this sold? Yeah. Well, you know, you and I know that the numbers in publishing, unless you're talking about Stephen King and James Patterson and one or two others, you know, the numbers are very often underwhelming. Yeah. When you compare them, oh, look, there's still big numbers. I mean, to have a half a million people read your book is still, that's an impressive, certainly by publishing standards, it's incredibly impressive, but it's still a, a good number of, uh, of of people. But, you know, if you said to a studio, I can get a half million people to buy, you know, buy tickets to this movie, they'll look at you like, what are you talking about? Right. If that's all you get, you're a failure. Of course. I need 25 million people to buy tickets to this. Oh, I mean, you know, the numbers are so out of bounds between what's meaningful in publishing and what's meaningful in film or TV that, um, you know, I I think in many ways you're you're not selling performance as much as you are visibility. Yeah. You know, I I have a, and I'm always amused by this, I have one particular client who's a big best-selling author. And for whatever reason, and and I don't know if this is around the country or not, but it is in L.A. Every time he comes out with a book, it is plastered on the sides and the backs of every bus that I come across. Yeah. (laughs) I, I don't know why. But every time I see that, I think this is phenomenal visibility. This is this is great. And, you know, and the publisher is is sort of doing the job of, you know, the you know, the the producers and the studios and all the buyers who buy his books and and they're helping them out enormously. So, I, you know, what they're what what they're buying more than anything else is visibility, the review in the paper, the review on NPR um, the ads in, on the internet, uh, all of those things, you, you know, you're buying that more than you are. Oh, it sold X number of copies. Cause those numbers again are almost always underwhelming. Well, and I've got to imagine that when you talk to an executive, um, you, if you can say something to them, if you can give them the title of a book and they respond with, Oh, I've heard of that. It probably half your job's already done. Oh, yeah. right. Just because just by them having heard of it at all, it, it makes that it's a very human thing in your brain that just kind of goes, Oh, I've heard of that. That means it must be big, you know? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of a funny story. I, I sold this, Pretty at that point, it was pretty big. It went on to become very, very big. But at that point, it was still, you know, the author had done very well for himself. Mm-hmm. It was an action franchise that I'd sold to Paramount, and uh, they and it was sold with two independent producers, and they aligned it with a big powerhouse production uh, outfit on the lot that they had to deal with. And one of the two producers, and they'd come to me and they said, "Hey, how do you feel about?" these producers getting on board. And I said, look, they're huge and incredibly meaningful. So I feel good about it. Yeah, let's do this. And it was at the very end of the year. And one of the two partners in that production company that they brought in 
on the mix on this, had gone away to Mexico for vacation. And she was sitting poolside and she counted four people holding up that author's books poolside. And she was incredibly struck by this and came back and and it it took that ironically. And she said, oh, my God, like this guy is either huge already and I don't realize it or he's about to be huge. Yeah. And. Okay, great. What are we doing? We've got to devote real time and money and resources to this. And and in a funny way, that small thing just really jump started the whole process for that to get made. Yeah, I bet it, it is. It's it's a very human response. I had um, <laughs> I moved into my house uh, about six years ago, the place I'm living now, and and I remember talking to a couple of my neighbors, and one of my neighbors had told him I was an author, and and he was he was very nice. He's like, oh, I love to read. Uh, yeah, I'll pick him up sometime. That's very cool. Um. And, uh, and I remember talking to him a, a few months later, maybe six months later, and he's like, hey, this is the weirdest thing. I just got back from a business trip in Poland, and during the lunch break, I looked over and one of my Polish co- colleagues was reading your book in oh. Polish. And, and I could see that kind of the light was in his eyes of, oh, you're an actual serious author. <laughs> like, that's so cool. And it is. It's that very human connection of, if I haven't heard of you, you're nobody. But then the moment you you see that other people are engaging with, like, a, a franchise or, or, you know, whatever, that's the moment you go, oh, this must be something. I, I, I don't know that there's any real way of knowing this, but I'd be willing to bet that the Hudson bookseller stores in every major airport have created more films and more TV series than anybody realizes. Oh, that's a fascinating thought. Yeah, just for, just from flying, just from whatever somebody's reading next to you on the plane. Absolutely. And not just that, you know, you walk by, you you know, they do a great job with display. You know, we've all got a few minutes to, to kill when we're in an airport. So what do we do? You know, you you wander by the you know the bookstore see what see see what they're pushing out there that 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 you don't know about we all do it yeah uh and i i, I think that's got to be enormously helpful and and if you notice of course it's the it's those big best selling books right up front you know mostly the big names but there's a smattering of lesser known names as well but that uh, i think that's done more for some authors than they probably realize yeah i um i when I when I first kind of when my agent uh, my my uh, when Caitlin first told me oh we've got a TV film agent for you this is going to be great you know we'll, we'll see what he does um, I I definitely started getting in the mentality of okay I understand that it's a very different thing and if he does sell something for me. I have to let go of it emotionally like that. It has to be kind of pushed out into the world. And it's it's someone else's baby at that point. Right. What do you do when you have a client that doesn't really understand that or maybe didn't quite internalize it properly? And they come to you and they say they're destroying my work. Like, do you have you had that experience? And and do you have like a do you have a way to react to that? You know, um, I've had that experience and it was with, it was with a very big author, uh, who was very upset about, uh, the way I, I honestly, I think there was more to it than this, that, that went beyond the content. Honestly, it was a kind of a process thing with the producers as, as well, but, but it, it, it manifested itself in, in, a in an unhappiness with, uh, with, with the scripts and, and the finished product. And, uh, 
Boy, it's a, that's a really, really tough one. That's a really tough one. Um, you know, if, if, if it's early enough in the process and it's brought to your attention that your client is unhappy, then that's when I go, that's when I start having some serious conversations with producers, Yeah, you know, and, and you have that, you know, Hey, this is not what I sold. And this is what you responded to. And this is what you told me you were buying. And now it's evolved into something very, very different. So let's talk about how that's happened and what we can do to, you know, satisfy my client, give, give, give him or her a comfort level with the finished product. Because after all, they've been living with this for a hell of a lot longer than you have. And look, sometimes that, that conversation can be helpful and can ameliorate the situation. And honestly, there are times when, you know, basically you're told, this is what the studio wants. Yeah. This is what the this is what the network wants. Uh, this is what they feel like they can sell, and we're doing it. And you know, at that point, there's not a lot you can do. Well, because you're trying to leverage kind of you're trying to leverage personal, uh, trying to make everybody happy versus the letter of the contract, right? Yes. Like because the letter of the contract gives them ninety nine percent of the power, but you can go back to them and you can appeal to their better nature, I suppose, right? You absolutely can. You absolutely can. And, you know, sometimes it's a matter of communication. You know, the producers have been dismissive. You know, they, they've not really given the thought and the time to the, to the clients. And look, you know what, when you're, when you're going down the road with a producer you've never worked with before, you know, it's, and I say this to all my clients, look, every deal is a leap of faith because you can't predict the future. Um, and there's a lot of cooks in there. And, 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 you know, part of the problem is that very often the people you're, you're dealing with, in the beginning, don't really have the ultimate power. You know, they're they're answering to other people, the people who are actually writing the checks. Yeah. You know, and producers are very conflicted in situations like this. You know, I, I I'm, I'm going to take a slight detour from your question here, but I think this really needs to be said because I, I, I've said it a lot to clients, and I probably need to say it often, more often to clients. The producer is not your friend. Um, they can be wonderful. And they can, they, 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 they can be friendly and, and God knows they can be seductive. <laughs> but when it comes down to it, the producer and the client don't have the same agenda, you know, and the producer inevitably, they just want to get that made because they don't get paid until it gets made. And, you know, they'd love it if you were happy, but if you're not happy, step aside because they want it made. And, you know, I've, I've, I've had a number of scenarios where clients have gotten very chummy with the producer and, you know, and, and they've talked them into uh, doing more work than they should have taking less money than they should have. And, and in some, in some cases, I quite nakedly, they've been played. You know, I had a client who I, you know, I, I fired about a year or two ago and he, you know, he came to me and he just said, Oh, uh, you know, the producer told me they have to option a few books. So uh, I agreed to take $50,000 off the purchase price. <laughs> Without talking to you. And I just said, and I thought, you're an, you're an idiot. Right. I, I just thought you are an idiot. He, he has completely played you. Completely. And in part, that is that is your job. Yes. Like literally your job, that's what you're getting a cut for, is making those negotiations, making those calls, and trying to figure all that out. Yes. Yeah. But he wanted to be friends with the producer. Yeah. And he wanted to be on the inside. And he wanted to placate them. So he unilaterally, by the way, without talking to anybody, 
you know, made that determination, which didn't endear him to, to me, certainly. Right. Um, you know, and, uh, and I thought it was incredibly stupid on, on, on his part, but that's an extreme example of the producer's not your friend. Yeah. Oh, and that's, you know, and that's, that's gotta just be so kind of frustrating because when, you know, cause you're already battling to all of these other factors that we've been talking about when you have to battle your own client as well as gotta be, Oh, just, just got a, got a kick in the gut, right? Well, you know, it's funny that you use the word battle because that's the phrase I use. Yeah. I've often said to clients, I can fight for you, but I can't fight for you and with you because that's one battle too many. Yeah. Yeah. It just is. It just is. And you can't, you know, you can't have your, you can't have your client undercutting you out there. Then you just have to just say, we, we, we need to have a parting of the ways right now. Right. Right. You know? So, uh, but, but getting back to your question of, you know, what happens when they're not happy with the, with, with the end product, you know, I've, I've had a variety of, 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 of clients who take very, very different viewpoints on this. You know, one of, one of my first big clients back in the day was Dorothy Allison and, you know, Dorothy was a revered, you know, national book award nominated writer and, you know, and, uh, people said, oh, you know, I, I saw your movie, you know, or aren't you, or no, I think it was when it was in development, aren't you worried about what they're going to do to your book? And she said, you know, my, my book is my book, you know, my, it's, it, it it's, it's not a movie. Mm-hmm. My book will still be my book. Um, and Neil Gaiman, by the way, was quoted very similarly just recently because somebody was unhappy with a series made on, on his book and, and somebody on the internet said, uh, I feel so terrible. They've ruined your book. He said, they didn't ruin my, ruin my book. My book is still my book. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas other authors are very, very, and look, I understand this. I completely understand this. Very, very proprietary and feeling like they, you know, they, they, they shouldn't be stepping away from the text. But, you know, the truth of it is a book is not a template for a movie. It's just not. And, and license will have to be taken. Uh, we all hope and do everything we can that it, it remains true to the spirit of, of, of the original text. But, you know, sometimes it doesn't. And, um, I, I think for authors, I mean, I have, I have one very big author who will not sell her work to Hollywood. Hmm. Just as, uh, uh-uh. I, you know, I, I, I don't want to go through that. Um, and, uh, and I respect that. I have to say, you know, she knows what her tolerance level is and what it, and what it's not. So I, I think for her that that may be the right decision. But, you know, I, I think for authors who, I mean, the difficulty comes with authors who really want to see a, a movie made of their work and really want to, you know, or a TV series, but they, they can't let go with it being completely faithful. Yeah. And that becomes very, very challenging. Right. It's weird because, you know, we have these discussions more and more online and, and kind of like kind of lay people have these discussions constantly about, you know, like The Witcher or Wheel of Time, you know, like these big fantasy series that are coming out and being converted. And it's it, I do come back to the same thing again and again is that is that when you're talking about TV and film, it's such a different beast. It's not just all those extra people that we talked about earlier are involved and need to be coordinated and make everything work properly but also i it's a different storytelling medium and it and because it's a different storytelling medium things have to be changed and things that will work fantastically on the page dialogue that works fantastically on the page can sound absolutely horrible when spoken out loud 
And <laughs> and the, it's just that's just kind of the nature of jumping between mediums like that. Yeah, I I I, I agree completely. I agree completely. I you know I, I I represent one thriller writer who uh, I'd set up his project at Warner Brothers, and uh, and and he he was he was a perfect example to me of 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 being completely uh aware of what worked and what didn't work whether it was from the script or his book um completely open to the idea that there may be better ways in a different medium to attack things um you know and he was approached by uh the producers and said we want you know we have we have a first draft in and we'd like you to take a look and he read it and and his comments were phenomenal they they were they were they were so good that one of the producers said, you know, you, you should be a screenwriter, you know, <laughs> but I was struck by the fact that one of his comments was, I love the opening to this movie that the, the screenwriter created. He said it was better than anything I imagined as a way to open my book. Um, and I think it absolutely works. Um, now there were other things he didn't like about it, <laughs> but you know, he, uh, I, I thought everything he said was completely well considered with not an ounce of preciousness about the original material. And, uh, and I think that kind of attitude is, is just very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I, that's gotta be the kind of the best that all parties can hope for in this kind of thing. Right. Right. Absolutely. I was curious what you thought of kind of the, uh, which I just referenced, the kind of this explosion of fantasy and science fiction becoming such kind of like a darling of these big honking series. You know, we've got comics, we've got uh, epic fantasy, we've got science fiction of various different stripes. What what do you think of this kind of blow up of of, of this modern blow up of of what? kind of has traditionally been a smaller genre uh, and and always kind of looked down on as maybe B-movie material? You know, I, uh, I have mixed feelings about it. Um, on one hand, I, I think it's terrific that a lot of, and, and look, I, I, I guess you can say a lot of this goes to the phenomenal success of Game of Thrones. I mean, yeah. you know, that was, you know, game changing, uh, you know, world changing, really. And you know, and I, you know, I, I thought Game of Thrones was phenomenal. I mean, I, I ate it up. I couldn't wait for it every, every, every Sunday, Sunday, every Sunday, um, like, like so many, many others. But on one hand, I think it's fantastic. I think to your point, you know, it has breathed new life in a category of, 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 of works that was not given enough credence and I think was underserved by the film and TV community. And, let, you know, unless we're talking about huge, huge books. But, you know, Game of Thrones, you know, before the TV series was, you know, was huge. Yeah. And it still took 20 or 25 years. I mean, I remember back when I was an assistant a million years ago, one of the agents at my agency rep George R. R. Martin. And, you know, she wasn't getting him arrested. Um, and by the way, I think he'd fully, you know, you know, cop to that back in the day. Um, he had a hard time. And uh, and I think for all the reasons you can imagine, the cost and, you know, is there going to be enough of an audience outside the, you know, a devoted, devoted, devoted cult-like audience? And of course, Game of Thrones proved that that is the case. It comes down to to great storytelling. So I think it's great. You know, the, the one thing that I, I, I kind of, um, you know, I, I kind of wonder about is that you know these things are so expensive and so big 
I wonder of how many worthy projects can be told with that same budget. Yeah. That they're going to devote to a big sci-fi special effects project. That they're devoting to it because of the big sci-fi special effects that will get a lot of attention and a lot of notice. Um, and, and the stories attached to those may or not be original, may or not be interesting, may or not be compelling. Whereas you could probably tell three or four other stories with, with the kind of budgets that they demand that, that, you know, things that won't get made. Yeah. That's, that's my only twinge of, of, uh, of regret about that. But, but again, to your point, boy, it's, it's, it's great that all of these really worthy novels are getting attention now in a way that they wouldn't have 10 or 15 years ago. I think that's great. Yeah. We, uh, we were watching um, Book of Boba Fett and I, I was struck by how you kind of have a couple of really big set pieces like Jabba's palace and uh, like the city scenes and stuff, but huge parts of the show are shot in a practically empty desert with z- little to no props with just a handful of characters. And I'm, I'm thinking, okay, who, whose idea, which was probably quite brilliant, was it to say, all right, <laughs> let's save all of our budget for a couple of key scenes, and then everything else is just going to be in the middle of the desert with nothing else around? That's brilliant. That is really, really, really brilliant. You know, for the longest time, you know, when you'd pitch a sci-fi project, you know, or people would talk about, you know, interest in sci-fi, they'd say, no big hardware. You know, you'd hear that time and time again because the budget scared people, Yeah, you know, and, and made it a much more risky project. Um, you could probably make an argument that, you know, that ex- those explosion of uh, Philip K. Dick movies you know, 15 or 20 years ago, and there were probably five or six of them made. You know, I mean, his work was really about a central core idea, a big idea. Yeah. But certainly not hardware dependent. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a, it's fascinating how much kind of thought has to go into these things, because, you know, just just even talking a little bit about, you know, what what is the set going to look like? That can make the difference between tens of millions of dollars for the budget of a show or a movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And obviously, you know, you risk, you you can spend a lot of money and have it still look cheap. Right. You know, and that that's everyone's nightmare, mm-hmm. you know, that that people come up and say, boy, they really they spent nothing on this or it looks like they spent nothing on this. And, you know, and and at that point, then it's all downhill. Yeah. You know, then the, then the word of mouth just really, um, you know, snowballs on itself. From your perspective, can you think of an example that most of the listeners probably would have you know, seen or at least heard of that that is an ideal intellectual property property translation uh, that went from book or comic or whatever kind of the, the the you know the starting material to the screen and everybody was generally happy. Um, I get, well, you know, you know, for some reason, I mean, God, we're going back quite a number of years now. You know, I think of you know the the thing that put John Grisham on the map, the firm. Mm. You know, I mean, I think that was a really really well done film. Um, and uh, I, I, I mean, Grisham, I had to have been incredibly happy with it. He was a, you know, a newer novelist at the time. And that was certainly the first book that put him on the map. But I, I think that that was a not only faithful adaptation, but a really solidly well done adaptation of, of his book. Oh my God. I, there's probably numerous other examples. Uh, I just need a minute to think about that. Um, right. Well, and I mean, in my own kind of little genre, like I, the example everybody would throw out would be the Lord of the Rings trilogy. 
uh, yes. it, of of that that was something that kind of I can't imagine anybody expected to do what it did. No, and then it just huge roll of the dice. Yeah, and huge roll of the dice with Peter Jackson. You know, he wasn't the hottest director at the time. Yeah, it just absolutely wild. Like I, I recommend anybody who's listening to kind of if they're interested in this kind of stuff to read articles about. The making of Lord of the Rings, the the original trilogy, and then read articles about the making of The Hobbit, because I feel like those are two very good examples that are very close together of all the things we've been talking about in terms of, on one hand, the stars aligning and and just having it hit perfectly versus uh, kind of everything's falling apart, people are leaving, people are entering, uh, you're trying to buy time from the studio to write a better script, you know, stuff like that with The Hobbit. Uh, it's really fascinating stuff to read about. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, look, you can say the same thing about Game of Thrones as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, George R. R. Martin was, was, was very pleased about that, and I think he was pretty faithful to his books. Um, and, uh, in fact, got ahead of his books at one point, um, which was really, really sort of interesting. So, you know, I mean, it, it, it proves that, you know, with, with the right intent, the right creators and the right material, you know, you can be incredibly faithful, um, you know, to, to, to the source material. And that is, that is certainly the ideal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but it's hard. It's so hard to make it perfect, you know, like it just, it's. It's a one in a million shot, right? It is. It is just very, very difficult because, as you pointed out earlier, they're different mediums. They they're they're not going to track in the same way, you know. And and you know, and you're you're also if it's a traditional film, you know, you're dealing with free act structure, you know, and uh, and it just there are so many considerations that then have to come into play that mean they're going to have to depart in some ways. You know, and then look, sometimes it it's just the very, you know, prosaic choice of, hey, our lead character needs more to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he or she needs to be uh, more central to this issue. You know, um, we cast a bigger actor than we thought we would. So this role is now, and that secondary role, forget it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, I had a client. This is not book related. I had a client once who's on the set of an of an action film with a big action star, and he would steal the best line. My and my client was very uh, and it was an ensemble piece, but it definitely had a starring role. And this is a big actor, you know. And uh, and my my client when he constructed the script, he gave pivotal moments to every significant actor in the story yeah um and 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 like one good solid line that would be memorable you know in those scenes to each of those you know actors and and the the star of this movie went out and plucked them all one by one for for his character and i thought well there's the movie business well there's um in in the show californication like there's there's a lot of there's a lot of times when the when actors will come and approach the screenwriter the main character the screenwriter uh privately and be like spice up my character and like try to bribe him and seduce him and be like oh let's give me more lines you know like all that stuff and i was always curious whether that was a real thing oh it's a thing yeah <laughs> oh it's a definitely a thing <laughs> oh, that's absolutely wild to me <laughs> you, you you know you'd think that well, you like to think that there'd be more generosity of spirit, especially if you're talking about a, you know, a monster movie star when it comes to, 
you know, people around him or her who have not had the break that they've had. And you certainly don't have a, a sliver of their fame. You know, they don't need it and they can afford to be generous. But being able to afford to be generous <laughs> and actually being generous don't go hand in hand, as you know. I, I actually really love seeing a lot of these actors who were kind of the the big 100% stars when I was younger, when I was a kid, uh, start doing a lot more bit roles. Um, uh, and and start doing kind of smaller uh smaller parts and cameos and uh you know like Matt Damon uh has done a bunch of cameos and um just you get some of these actors just clearly enjoy clearly they have made their hundreds of millions and they just enjoy being in some things and that's always really fun you know and and that has been a change that's been relatively recent where actors They'll say, yeah, I don't, yeah, I'll do a bit part just because I like the movie or I like the director or I like the script or I think, I think it'll be fun. Yeah. Throw me in for a scene or two. Uh, I think that is, uh, that's great. And I think it says a lot of positive things about those actors that they can just drop in and drop out and they don't need to make it about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's in, in, in an industry that I imagine is fueled by ego. That's quite cool. <laughs> I think it is too. I think it is too. And you're right. You'll look there. There are some, you know, Soderbergh is kind of famous for this. I mean, people really enjoy being on his sets, you know, and he'll get big name actors because, you know, they, 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 they know he's going to turn out an interesting product. Uh, they like him personally. He's easy to work for. He's, he's brilliant. And, you know, he, he makes it fun. Um, and, uh, I remember an interview with, with, um, um, God, who was it? Julia Roberts. And she said, you know, when her scene was over, she just hung out on the set of Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. Because it was just so much fun to hang out. Uh, that's so cool. And I thought, well, that that director's doing something right then. Yeah. Yeah. Making people happy, which is which is really nice <laughs> and, yeah. and doesn't necessarily always fit into the mechanism. Right. 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 Absolutely. <laughs> well, I like to wrap these uh, these podcasts up by asking each guest very simple question. What's the last thing you ate that blew your mind? Oh, my God. God, what that that is not a question I'd have expected to Nope, totally out of left field. Wow. Wow. Oh wow. Um even even just something that you ate recently that you still kind of think about and maybe you're going to go back for soon. Yeah. That is a great question. Um mm, God, and I'm kind of a foodie, but I'm a Tom also sort of a tough critic. Oh yeah? Um so yeah, so you know, say getting blown away, that's a high bar for me. Um, I would say, you know, there, I, I had, uh, I love Italian food mm -hmm. and I'm really partial to it. And there's a restaurant in LA called Marino's and I had, and this is a basic kind of dish, but whatever they did to it was sublime. And I had a chicken Parmesan dinner there about a month ago. And I remember at the time thinking, this is just I don't know what they did to it that was different or special, but it was fabulous. I adore a chicken parmesan. Like pasta is, <laughs> oh, pasta is so good. No, oh, I could eat it every meal, uh, three meals a day. I absolutely could. Not a good idea. Uh, yeah, but I uh, know <laughs> it's terrible for you. Yeah, that, that'll that'll put the meat on very quick. It really, really will. Really, so I try to mix it with a little protein to to counteract that, but. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that would that would have been it for me. But I I I, I could I love Italian food. I, I eat mm. it all the time, and uh, 
And there's something sort of so basic about it. But, you know, when somebody brings a little bit something, you know, even even like, you know, it's what they say about pizza. Yeah. You know, even even not good pizza is still pretty good. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel that way about a lot of Italian food. But when somebody brings something really special to it, then I really sit up and take notice. Oh, it, it can transcend. We uh, we lived in Cleveland for many years, which is where I'm from. And uh, and Cleveland has a wonderful little Italy. Uh, that is just that's got some fantastic restaurants an amazing bakery like oh and and it was just it was a a monthly trip down to the bakery and whatever the best restaurant was at the time we would do for our anniversary every year oh, I, I just love that oh that's great I, I i love discovering new places and there was a, you know pre-pandemic i had a uh, a habit you know on, on saturdays generally you know working around the house and my 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 gift to myself and, and my partners, I'd say every Saturday, let's try a restaurant we have never tried before. Oh, that sounds really fun. I yeah. like that. And it's, you know, it's lunch. So, you know, it's, it's, it's low stakes. You're not going to get hit with a, a huge bill for, for, for lunch. And it would, it would vary from a little taco joint that was a hole in the wall to, I remember once we went to a, uh, it, it was a sushi place but it was a sushi place where everything came on a track and, and it, it just traveled around the room and you just, as it came by, you just grabbed it. Yeah. And, and I thought I've got to try this place. Uh, so we tried that, you know, there was a great barbecue place at uh, grand central market that we tried that I loved uh, a Filipino place also at grand central market that we tried that turned out to be phenomenally well, you know, even a place like pie hole, which um, is amazing. The pie is like amazing. And we went to, it was downtown in the arts district in kind of a desolate area and uh, parking was tricky, but, um, and I'd never been there before. And you just sit on this uh, picnic table. And I thought this is, it, by the way, one of the best desserts I've ever had in my life. Their Mexican chocolate pie, transcendent, Ooh, transcendent. That, that, that sounds really good. So Mexican chocolate, like with with a little bit of spice in it. Exactly, it had a little bite to it. Oh, I I love that. We get we get uh, like a like a Mexican hot chocolate sometimes that I just ooh I love that. Oh, it was so great. Good. It was great. So I, I think I had their chicken pot pie for for a main, and then their we we split their Mexican chocolate pie for dessert. Ooh. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> That was agent Steve Fisher. Thanks again to Steve for coming on to chat. You can read more about Steve's agency, APA, on their website. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website, or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, Glenn with an extra N, and Jennifer and Angela Johnson for their backing on Patreon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.